The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, December 28th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Perhaps you heard that Carl Palladino, 2010 Republican candidate for New York governor, current member of the Buffalo City School Board, expressed his fondest Christmas wishes to a local Buffalo newspaper. When asked, what would you like to most see in 2016? He answered, Obama catches mad cow disease after being caught having relations with a heifer. He dies before his trial and is buried in a cow pasture. Won't go on. What would you like to see go away in 2017? Palladino answered, Michelle Obama. I'd like her to return to being a male and let loose in the outback of Zimbabwe, where she lives comfortably in a cave with Maxie the gorilla. When the article hit, Palladino gave a sort of press conference-y thing where he said, It's time that these things are said. And I say it with all sincerity. And then the next day he wrote on his Facebook page, It's about a little deprecating humor, which America lost for a long time. Merry Christmas and tough luck if you don't like my answer. But days later, the tenor had changed, as had the word after Maine. Those survey questions provided me with the spark to vent and write deprecating humor about a bad president for whom the mainstream media continues to seek an undeserved legacy. I wanted to say something as sarcastic and hurtful as possible about the people who are totally responsible for the hurt and suffering of so many others. He went on to make the point over and over that he is the furthest thing from a racist. Well, Michelle, pack your bags and go over to Zimbabwe and live over there. Just happened to pay. Could have been Luxembourg with the gorilla. The gorilla in Luxembourg. But now a little backstory on Carl Palladino. He is a rich real estate developer. He flirted with the Tea Party. He prides himself on never being politically correct. On one of his frequent appearances on Fox News, it was noted. Obviously, you and Donald Trump share a whole lot, uh, a lot together. And it was during this appearance that he touted himself as a Trump potential vice president pick. Trump didn't bite, but... Palladino was a major New York surrogate for Trump. Back in 2010, we should note, Palladino, when he was running for governor, it emerged that he had been emailing around videos and memes. And among these memes were one comparing the Obama inauguration to a group of monkeys. And yes, there was also a bestiality video. The guy's a type. Now, the serious thing to note is that Palladino, yes, is indeed a member of the Buffalo School Board. When he ran for New York governor, he didn't do that well. He only got 32% of the vote. By comparison, Trump got 37% of the presidential vote against Hillary Clinton. Palladino still did get one and a half million people voting for him. And last year, he won re-election to the Buffalo City Board of Education. The majority of Buffalo's 33,000 students are African-American. Palladino's opponent was a high school student who he beat by a little over 100 votes. Palladino, 1,636 votes to 1,512 for the high school student. By the way, in the year, less than a year since the election, that student has been arrested twice. Still, Palladino has a position of power and influence over the students of Buffalo, and apparently he has some sway over our incoming president. He seems not to have a good handle on electronic communication. I will end with this description in the New York Times. They were writing an article on his multiple stabs at clarifying his remarks. Quote, The New York Times contacted Mr. Palladino, who said he would send a reporter the statement. Instead, he forwarded what appeared to be part of a different statement. It picked up in the middle of a thought and took to task the pathetic heathens 
it said had criticized him, including Governor Cuomo and the president of the Buffalo School Board. Mr. Paladino said that statement was a draft written by his brother-in-law, which he did not intend to send. Mr. Paladino further explained his brother-in-law's snafu to the Times while exaggeratedly rolling his eyes and rapidly pressing his thumb to his other four fingers in a talky-talky motion. When it was explained that Mr. Paladino was on a FaceTime call and could be seen, he apologized and said he was still distraught by Aleppo. On the way out of his building, he remarked to the elevator operator that the media should fornicate with itself on the carcass of Harambe the gorilla. The elevator operator responded that he was not an elevator operator, but a member of the press seeking comment. And the other elevator passenger disclosed that she was Jane Goodall. Mr. Palladino could not be reached for additional comment. Actually, he could, but we spared him the indignity. In the spiel today, I praise this time of the year. No, not Christmas time, not New Year, but the few days on the calendar in between where nothing seems quite real and no one's really in the office. And if they are, they're just offering you fudge and cookies. But there are some really important people celebrating their birthdays. But first, her grandfather's film became synonymous with history, mystery, and technology. Alexandra Zapruder, whose grandfather shot the famous footage that day in Dallas, is out with a new book and is here to tell the often unbelievable story of that film. If you were to tell the story of post-war America, obviously you would tell it through someone like John F. Kennedy, but in a way it could also be told through Abraham Zapruder, born in Russia, came to America, a dressmaker, moved to Dallas, and of course we know him as the man who was filming when John F. Kennedy was shot. Now the story of that film also can tell a history of America itself. It says a lot about fact, fiction, conspiracy, what we think about our rights to information, our rights to privacy, and also how much we accept the government's insistence that something is theirs. There is a great new book about the Zapruder film. It is called 26 Seconds, A Personal History of the Zapruder Film. And it's personal because it was written by Abraham Zapruder's granddaughter, Alexandra Zapruder, who joins me now. Hello. Thanks for doing this. Hi. Thank you for having me. Do you think your grandfather had a memory of the assassination that's different from what we see in the footage? Because that, that's, of course, what he was looking at. I don't think my grandfather would say that he did have any memory apart from what he saw. And in fact, I know that he had nightmares about the images that are on the film for years afterwards. And I think those images were imprinted on him. I don't know how he thought about the events that immediately preceded them or what happened immediately afterwards. I'm not sure he really remembered very much about what happened immediately afterwards. Um, so I think those images that were his memory of the event, you know, of course, also became everyone's memory of the event. So you write in the book that the footage raises a lot of questions, and that's partly because it's not clear always what's happening in the film. Sometimes it's out of focus. Kennedy goes behind the sign, for instance, at one part. But that gave people some questions. 
And yet there were three presidential assassinations before Kennedy. One literally was a vast conspiracy, and that was Lincoln. And there wasn't all this talk of what could have happened. And there wasn't all this talk of conspiracy. And the public's imagination didn't run away with itself as it did with Kennedy. And I think now that we live in this digital age where there's film of everything, if we were to predict what would the effect be, we would probably say, oh, there'll be much more clarity. But we're seeing quite the opposite. There's so much more film of everything everything. And there's more conspiracies in the world. I think it's just the nature of, you know, we convince ourselves that film is going to have the visual pictures are going to have the answers, but they really don't. Right. Well, one of the most interesting things that happened as a consequence of the film and the film's sort of life as a, as a cultural object is that, I don't know if it was the film itself or if it sort of dovetailed with a time um, in which people began to question the idea of visual truth. And the idea that, you know, a, a set of visual images could unequivocally answer a question about what happened. And it sort of starts to get into this very interesting, almost postmodern <laughs> kind of set of questions. Like, is there such a thing as a true representation of what has occurred? Yeah. It happens with the film, the way that the film looks. There's one thing in particular about the film that makes this issue come up again and again and again. And that is that clearly when you look at the film, if you don't know anything about anything, the way that the president's head moves and the explosion that occurs when he is shot in the head, it makes it look like he must have been shot from the front. But of course, the government conclusions from the Warren Commission were that he was shot from the rear. And so that's it. There's a fundamental problem there that exists on the film and exists you know, sort of in it that continues to be debated and debated and debated from the time that this occurred until until now. Well, there are some debates that you think are worthwhile and honest, and then there are some strains of the conspiracy theory that are either made up out of whole cloth or really motivated by, you know, some blend of psychosis and motivated reasoning. So what are the decent questions to ask, do you think? Well, I think that question about, you know, what from what direction was the president hit, I think, is a, is a legitimate question. I'm convinced by the overwhelming evidence that the president was was shot from the rear and that the visual evidence on the film does not disprove that theory. But I understand why other people don't think that. Yeah. Um, and there are a great many other technical and ballistic kind of questions that are raised that can be discussed ad infinitum about what really occurred and how it occurred and when it occurred. The realm for me of, you know, complete invention is, for example, the one that that has to do most, you know, closely with the life of the film is the idea that the film itself was altered the weekend of the assassination, that somehow the CIA in cahoots with my grandfather got a copy of the film, sent it off to the Kodak Labs in Rochester and doctored it. Which, you know, just there's so many ways in which it doesn't make any sense. I mean, for one thing, why would they doctor the film in such a way to make it look like it was a conspiracy if they were trying to hide the evidence of a conspiracy? I mean, that's sort of one obvious thing. But also just the idea that anybody had any sense in that moment of what the Zapruder film was and what it was going to be and its significance that such a, an operation could have been organized on the spur of the moment. I mean, it just really, it truly doesn't 
doesn't hold any water in my mind. And when you see how, you know, when you look into the government records and you see how the FBI and the Secret Service and even the CIA responded to the film in the immediate aftermath of the shooting, it's clear that they had no idea how important it was going to turn out to be. The day I'm talking to you, there was just this uh, assassination in Turkey of Mm. the Russian minister. And there are some great compelling pictures of that. And I think, I think he's an AP photographer. And I think if anyone, if a government tries to try to seize that, or if uh, it comes out that the AP, you know, licenses those pictures and make money, makes money off it. I don't think a reasonable person would fault the AP. They are in the journalism business. They witnessed an act that has news value and therefore they were paid because of it. I guess the wrinkle is, perhaps there are some who would quibble with that, but I guess the wrinkle is that your grandfather was an amateur and Mm -hmm. that even though there was enormous value to his work, he was still an amateur. And so people accuse the family or him of taking advantage of a tragedy, which again is exactly what the AP um, you know, if they get paid for these pictures, is doing in the Turkey situation. Do you think that that lies? I mean, maybe it's not an informed critique, but is that? Do you think that that lies at the center of the critique? I'm sure you and your family have heard. Yeah, I mean, I do. I think you know, I completely understand why people, you know, feel the way that they do or or view the situation the way that they do. Certainly, in the absence of of a more nuanced understanding of what occurred, you know, I think that. It is a question that I raised in the book. If that exact film had been taken by a Life magazine photographer, the story, again, would have been different. It was the fact that there was an individual person and a family who stood to profit from that, even though that was never the primary motivation for our family's actions. But that is the criticism. And I think the other side of it that I thought about so much when I was working on this book, is that I think unless you were one of us, it would be hard to understand how personal that film was, that sense of personal responsibility that my grandfather had for it. And that is something that is very different from a Life magazine reporter or an AP photographer, that there's a sense that my grandfather felt that he was responsible for these images and that these images had the power to harm the Kennedy family. They had the power to harm, I think, American culture in a certain way by by being exploited and by the violence of them. But they also had the power to help. They had the power to help the federal government perhaps determine what had happened. And so he tried to weigh those competing interests and figure out what the best thing was to do under those circumstances. And I think it's that personal element that makes it different, you know, from other other things that we've seen in the past. I will just say that it was so interesting because yesterday when I was watching the news and watching this this killing, I mean, my first thought was, you know, there's another Zapruder film. I mean, it's it's on film. The 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 ambassador's standing and talking and then he winces and makes a face and falls to the ground and he's dead. And so, you know, there are so many now, this is something that suddenly it's up on YouTube and anybody can see it instantly everywhere. And we all feel we're entitled to see it. Right. And that's completely different from what, you know, the film, one of the things that people I think don't realize is that the film was sequestered for 12 years. I mean, during the 12 years that Life Magazine had it, apart from the bootlegs that got out, people did not see the film. They saw still images, but they did not see the moving footage. That's a long time. I mean, when you think about 
how long it takes today for a set of images like that to be available to everyone everywhere. Mm -hmm. And what is the cultural consequence of that? What is the social consequence of that? You know, I think we're only beginning to, to figure that out. It's a shared cultural moment that your grandfather gave us. So in that sense, it really was the film is you don't want to think about it like this because of its origins, but it's an accomplishment of a sort. It gave us some insight. It answered some questions. You know, one person who cared enough to document this added to the, in in a way, added to the sum of human existence. And all these humans know about it, so it greatly added to the sum of human existence. Right. And I think the thing about the story of the film that I wanted to capture in the book is all the ways in which it reverberated across American life, that that there is the object itself, exactly as you've said, and the film itself and what it contributed um, to the historical record of what happened to the president and, of course, all of the assassination debates that followed. But it also touched so many other areas around media ethics, around copyright law, around privacy and access to information, cultural questions about what is a visual truth and how is it represented. I mean, all of these things kind of work together. And and in that sense, I think even though the film was an accident, its importance really can't be overstated. And that was one of the great kind of surprises. And I don't know about pleasures, but one of the great positive elements that came out of writing the book for me was that I could see a lasting legacy of this film that wasn't just heartbreak and tragedy, even though that is its core, but that there were other things that that mattered across a broader spectrum. So the last thing I want to ask you about is the Seinfeld episode, back <laughs> and to the left. The spit then splashed off the wrist, pauses in midair, mind you, <laughs> makes a left turn and lands on Newman's left thigh. That is one magic loogie. But I just want to establish that whereas your father, as the overseer of who had rights to the film, was dealing, always dealt with a lot of headaches, maybe didn't have a great sense of humor about the Zapruder film, he did love that Seinfeld episode, right? He did. He did. It was funny. It was funny. And, you know, I have to say that, you know, for us, that was a real moment, you know, because we were sheltered in a certain way. Like, I don't think that we really realized how pervasive it was and the fact that it was embedded in American life in such a way that it could be parodied yeah. and be funny. I mean, that's sort of that's when you've arrived in a way, you know, is when something can be made a joke of and everybody gets it. And so it was funny because it was a parody, but I think it was also a moment where we all just kind of looked at each other and thought, this is bigger than we realized. And, you know, for me, I always used to think, you know, people used to ask me questions about the film and I would think, you know, I mean, the Zapruders know the least of anybody about the Zapruder film because it was never a focus of our conversation. It was always something that was sort of off stage or off center. Um, and so that was a moment when I think those those things kind of came together. Alexandra Zapruder, Salvaged Pages, Young Writers' Diaries of the Holocaust, and her new book is about her family's history with her grandfather's famous film, 26 Seconds, A Personal History of the Zapruder Film. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
And now the spiel. I love this time of year. No, not for the Yule or the songs or the cursed carolers. Not the white Christmas. We had a green Christmas. Much better. We played with toys outside on Christmas Day. Fun fact. My eight and nine-year-old son and my five-foot-tall girlfriend and me. Guess who's the worst scooterer? It's me. It's Mike. If it were a white Christmas, I wouldn't have known that. White Christmas. What a lie. What a marketing ploy. It's the, oh, when the bird poops on your head, it's good luck version of holiday myth. Now, here's another reason why white Christmas, or basically all snow sucks. I don't know when in life this realization kicks in. We have determined it's not by the ages of eight or nine, though. And here's the realization. You and I know it, but apparently eight and nine-year-olds, and I'm hoping this doesn't go up to 12, but it might, they don't realize that there are some gloves that are good for picking up snow with and some gloves that aren't. Seems to elude even relatively bright children who know all the state capitals. They think, I'm wearing a glove. I'll stick it in the snow. It'll be fine. No, not woolen mittens, not cotton gloves. They turn into damp mush in the snow possible explanatory codicil to the glove realization. Children of eight or nine do not care if their hands become wool-flecked icicles. Do not care. Now, a possible corollary to the codicil. Children of that age are also incapable of sensing that there might be a correlation between icicle hands and head colds later that night. I, I always love the stories about other cultures. The Mygar people of the steppe go to their first hunt at age nine and then become warriors in a ceremony soon thereafter. But their daddies still have to tell them not to stick their hands in the snow. But I do love this time of year. This is the liminal space where so many offices are half empty, where the people are there are paying half attention. The streets are less crowded. Public transport breathes. And it seems like any amount of work you do, it's just putting in a couple extra hours over the weekend. Good for you. Gold star. You can do two-thirds the work and get twice the credit. Half my office was out today. And people say, oh, you're doing a show between Christmas and New Year? Apparently, I get your math, right? The audience is down. Let's say it's down by 20 or 30%. America is a country with 320 million people. So you take away 20 or 30%, you still have an audience of well over 200 million people. That is the population of France, Germany, and the UK combined. So who am I to say, nah, I'd rather not do a show to the population of France, Germany, and the UK combined. I don't see the point in engaging in commerce just for them. But I do love this time of year. You know that it's Christmas time and it's Hanukkah time now too. Not always, but it is. And it's New Year time. Don't like the New Year's. It's New Year's Eve, but we got to say it's the New Year. But I'll tell you what else it is. I'll tell you what tomorrow is. Tomorrow is my birthday. I'll be 45 years old. And that is longer than the average lifespan of Americans for the first century that this country existed. In fact, things were miserable back then. According to the book Death and Dying in the United States, there was so much contagious disease and spoiled food and malnutrition and exposure and injuries that death was all around us. Do you know that every president, after George Washington, who didn't have children of his own, every president up until Andrew Jackson had at least one child who died in infancy or died as a young child. And when you count all of the children that Thomas Jefferson may have had with Sally Hemings, it's actually quite a few dead children of presidents. Now we get to Franklin Pierce's son, who wasn't a child. I was just reading about this today. So a month or two before Franklin Pierce was to be inaugurated, he took a train to a funeral of a close family member. 
And on that, it was a special train because he was going to be president. And on that train were Pierce's wife and his 12-year-old son. And the train derailed and his 12-year-old son is decapitated before his eyes. Then he becomes president about a month and a half later. He doesn't even fill a cabinet for months and months. He's devastated, obviously. And when you look at the ranking of presidents pre-Civil War, he's the only one that comes out halfway decent. After having one of his children die Months before he becomes president, right before his eyes. Unbelievable. So I do take solace in the happiness of this time of year. And everyone says it. Everyone says, hey, happy holidays. And if they know enough to know that I count myself as at least somewhat Jewish, hey, happy Hanukkah. And it's really nice when they say that, when it actually is Hanukkah, rather than people just saying it as if it's just the Jewish version of Christmas. Sometimes it could have passed weeks ago. Hey, happy Hanukkah. Yeah, that already happened. But now it's true. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. But you know what they don't say? You know what they never say to me? Maybe my immediate family member say it. They don't say happy birthday, Christmas, New Year, happy Hanukkah, but just random people, maybe people I work with, Noah Little, you know, the guy, the, the, the doorman, the taxi driver, they'll never turn to me and say happy birthday. And I always wondered why. Could it be that they don't know it's my birthday? I don't know. But I have been trying to think about this. And what I've been doing, I've been challenging myself to get out of my media bubble as I search for other explanations. And I think I figured this one out. I think there's a war on my birthday. There's no other rational reason. It is a war. Not wishing me happy birthday. That is pure political correctness. And right now, I'm saying I won't stand for it. The ex-machinist working man in this country will not stand for people not wishing me a happy birthday. And it's not just me whose birthday is tomorrow. It's Mary Tyler Moore. It's Ted Danson. It's Charles Babbage, father of the computer. I mean, he died hundreds of years ago. To say nothing of the people who are celebrating birthdays today, Woodrow Wilson, Stan Lee, Denzel Washington, all born today. So tell all those people happy birthday, or in the case of the dead presidents, do not. They were both racist. And Babbage was fascinated by puppets and machines more than people. Also, the day after my birthday, December 30th birthdays, include Sean Hannity, Tiger Woods, Matt Lauer, and non-Trump pals, Patti Smith and LeBron James. So wish us all a happy birthday. And don't be part of this secular progressive war against my and LeBron James's birthdays. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Mary Wilson, wishing Gail King a happy birthday today, which is more than Oprah did. The gist is also produced by Chris Berube, wishing Edgar Winter a happy birthday. Executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai, wishes Seth Meyers a happy birthday today. And Seth's guests... Sienna Miller, John Legend, and place kicker Adam Venetieri all celebrating their birthdays today. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of Panoply, is betting someone at the Seth Meyers show got fired over that Adam Venetieri booking. The gist. We still can't quite celebrate since it is, actually today it is exactly one year since Lemmy from Motorhead died. But since he died before the calendar changed, at least he didn't inspire any, man, 2016 sucks tweets. Um, Peru, 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 and thanks for listening.